0: Well, I very much enjoy preaching. It's uh, it's a big part of who I am. It's a big part of what I do. Um, but sometimes a sermon comes along that messes with me, that makes me think a lot and really um, sort of concretes a lot of stuff. And today is one of those sermons. This is one of these sermons that messed with me all this week. I finally finished it yesterday. And, uh, but I feel like it's not finished with me. And I'm actually pretty excited to share it with you all. Because I think I say some, uh, imp- I think God has some important things to say. Although I'll be honest with you, we, it's a lot of history. It's going to take us a little while to get there. So you got to trust me and you got to stay with me. Because at the end, I think you're going to see why this is such an important uh, message that God's been messing with me all week abounds. Today I want to talk about, an important part of Celtic Christianity called monasticism. Monasticism. Uh, to begin with, i just got to be honest that as Presbyterians and Protestants, talking about monasticism is totally weird. In fact, that's maybe even a strange word for you. What it means is like monks and nuns that live together in monasteries or abbeys. That's what we're talking about today. And for Protestants, that seems so weird. Now yeah, it seems very odd to us, a very odd thing indeed. So let me just start out by really clearly calming your nerves that I do not want to start a monastery. I do not want to be a monk, and I really don't want to be a nun. I am not aiming that you have to be a monk or a nun. What I want to show you today is what, why monasteries were so important for the Celtic people, why Celtic monasteries, Irish monasteries were so important for saving civilization in Europe and what I think we can learn from them today. Okay, so, first some definitions. The word for monastic or monasticism comes from the Greek word monakos, meaning solitary or single. It was meant for people who were singularly devoted to their relationship with God. So these are people that would not get married, they would normally give up all possessions and totally focus on their relationship with God. Poverty, chastity, self-denial. And it, and it sort of develops in the third and fourth centuries of Christianity. Okay, So what people started to do, is they started to gather together. They started to take vows. They started to, to become communities that would go deep into their faith. In places like Egypt, and people who were called the Desert Fathers... Later, it would be formalized into orders like Franciscans and Dominicans. A monastery then, or an abbey, was one of these places, these buildings or these compounds, where these people that lived together and shared life together would would be. And the people that lived there might be called monks, from the word monastery, or nuns, or abbots. The abbots were the people who lived in the abbey. But, But those are sort of our terms. Now, there's actually a lot of biblical inspiration for this kind of living. Here's a bunch of ideas. In Matthew 19, 21, Jesus tells the rich young man to sell all his possessions. There are many times in the Bible where people like Jesus or Moses spend time alone in the desert. There's a great emphasis on commitment to prayer. In fact, Paul says to pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. There's a lot of warning about the dangers of materialism. There's a lot of talk about obedience and submission. But by far the most important text for thinking about monasticism is the description of the early church in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2 it says this about the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done among the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So notice this early church had this radical idea that when we follow Jesus, it takes over our lives. They gathered daily for teaching, for prayer. Not once a week, everybody. Daily they were adding. Daily they were going to church. Daily, they were doing their prayers. Daily, they were breaking bread with other people. That means sharing meals and also sharing the sacrament of communion. They had things in common. They got rid of the possessions that they didn't need so that they could give those gifts to people who really did need them. Daily. Daily. And then what does the text say? This is amazing. And God added to their number daily. Can you imagine if God just added to our number daily, one person, one person a day, how would we be in three years? It'd be a totally different place. Daily, daily. This was the idea for monastic communities, to try to live like this. They were sort of the Marine Corps of the church. They were the Navy SEALs of the faith. We're going to train. We're going to work. We're going to set ourselves apart. And they understood when people got into monastic communities that it wasn't for everybody, Church is not going to go real well if everybody's celibate. (laughs) We want children. We want next generations. We need people that are working. into. But what they said was there's some of us that need to pull apart. And so monastic communities weren't just for the people that lived there that took vows, but also was for other people to come in and be a part of the community. So let let me quickly highlight a few aspects. There's seven different aspects of this, and these will make perfect sense to you having heard what they're talking about in Acts. Number one was asceticism. Asceticism, which is a word we do not use anymore, but it's from the Greek word meaning exercise or training. It basically means self-discipline or self-denial. Monks and nuns would not wear fancy clothes. They would not sleep on comfortable beds. They would get up very early in the morning. They would commit to self-denial, to not eating big meals, simple accommodations. Number two, community life. Christianity doesn't make any sense in isolation. Even monks and nuns who would take vows of silence would eat with other monks, would take part in the monastery, would be in prayer, but just be praying silently. They committed to living together, to sharing life together. Number three, prayer and contemplation. The spiritual lives of monks and nuns were strictly structured. You prayed certain times a day. There'd be a bell that would go off that you'd go to your morning prayers, and there'd be a bell that would go off and you'd go to noontime prayers. and then you go to a bell would go off and you go to evening prayers. And before bed the bell would go off and you'd go to compline, nighttime prayers. In fact, it was monks that really created watches and clocks because they wanted to be very strict with their times. But it was prayer. It was contemplation. You were going to schedule. You were going to plan your time to talk to God, to listen to God, and to think about God. Spiritual direction and discipleship. Number four, monastic communities further develop their faith by engaging in faith conversations. They would sit down with each other and they would talk about stuff. You would sit down with a person that was called a spiritual director. This is a really odd thing for us, but it does happen in a lot of other traditions. It was like a counselor. Or like a life coach for your faith. So you'd sit down and you'd talk with them, and they would talk about, what are you feeling and how are you going through this, and where's your faith at? And they, they might give you exercises or things to practice. Teaching and learning. in most abbeys, most monasteries, especially early on in monasticism, there was serious attention giving to teaching and learning. Most people couldn't read. Most people couldn't write. Texts had to be hand- copied. And so part of what you did in monastic movements is you would write down text. You would actually copy the Bible. You would copy important texts so that people could have it, so that you could share it, and so that you yourself could learn it. In fact, it would be a lot of abbeys that would start schools so that they could teach other people how to read and how to write. And then the abbey would be like the library for the community so they could come and they could learn. They also, monasteries, this is really important for Christianity, the monasteries developed a lot of bookmaking. So, so how do you keep all these scrolls? Well, a lot of the Christians started figuring out, well, if we bind the pages like this, and we start making these sort of book things, then it's a lot easier to travel with them, it's a lot easier to find your page, and that kind of thing. Work and stewardship. Number six, monks and nuns didn't just sit around and pray and read. They had to work. They had to clean the abbey, they had to cook food, they had to grow vegetables and spices, they had to raise animals for eating, for milk, for wool. And then the other thing a lot of monasteries were known for is what? Brewing beer. A lot of the monasteries would actually brew beer using the elements that they would grow. Why? Because another, the seventh very important part of being a monastery was hospitality and service. Hospitality and service. And so you wanted to be able to have people over. You wanted people to come stay and study and read and pray with you. And so you wanted to be able to offer good food and beer and wine. And you wanted to be able to have people enjoy their time when they were at the monastery with you, on top of it being a good way to fund part of the ministry. But it wasn't just bringing people in. It was also service. Monks and nuns were expected to go out and to serve and to take care of the poor and and to fight for justice in the community. They were meant to go out. You didn't just separate so that you were separate from the world. It's like you came together into a deep community so that you could go wide. right? It's not escaping the world in in its purest form, monasticism. It's actually getting a deep community so you can go out into the world. Now, different abbeys would, would have different rules about these things. So some abbeys, you might have to pray three times a day, but other monasteries, you might have to pray five times a day, and they might expect you to wear just certain things, but but others might be a little more loose when you went out, And, and others would have certain jobs you had to do, and some were known for their crops that they would grow for their community, and others might be known for something else. Others would have more scribes or less scribes, and so each of these monasteries had what they called a rule of life, A rule of life. This was the the principles, guidelines, procedures for the community. If you're going to live here, this is how you're going to live. And a rule of life is less about rules, but more about like a ruler. Like how are you going to measure yourself? I'm going to stand up. These are the standards I'm going to hold myself to. That's really what a rule of life is all about. And even if you didn't live in the monastery, you might have your own rule of life. So I might not live as a monk, but I might decide... But, but since my monks pray three times a day in my local monastery, I'm going to pray three times a day. So you can have your own rule of life, your own commitment to, here's what I'm going to set out as my standards that I'm going to measure up to for following Jesus. So think about this. Monasticism is developing and expanding in the Roman Empire dur- during the 3rd and 4th centuries. So this is after Constantine, as Christianity gets a foothold in becoming the dominant religion of the empire, people start these monasteries. Well, it's right in the middle of that, in 433 A.D., that a man named St. Patrick becomes a missionary to Ireland. He had been born earlier. He had spent time as an Irish uh, slave. He was captured by pirates, and he was a slave in Ireland. And he goes back with a team of missionaries that starts proclaiming the gospel. But but remember, he, he's doing this in a time where this monastic movement has been growing in the Roman Empire. So part of what Patrick does is sort of start monasteries wherever he goes. He starts these gatherings of people that start forming communities, that start having some rules about prayer, that really start to share life together. It's really less formal than monasticism would later be, but it's very much that kind of community. And so it's really the community that they would start that would win over the people to Christ in the Celtic world. Okay, this community was so important for the spread of the Celtic Christianity. Let's remember, too, that, that he, because Patrick was a slave for several years in Ireland, he missed several years of his education. He did turn around and get trained as a priest, but he never really caught up academically to where he could have been or should have been after being a slave in Ireland for several years. And so for for Patrick, education was really important. He didn't get all that he needed, and he made sure when he went into Celtic the Celtic people that they started to get it. Again, one of the things one of the only things you know about St. Patrick is that he used a shamrock to teach the Trinity. I think the only lasting image we really have of Patrick, he's teaching. He's correcting theology. Let us also remember how crazy the life of the Celts were. They were tribal, often attacking each other, often taking slaves. They had beliefs in spirits and gods through nature. The, and, and though the Celts valued learning, they actually didn't like writing. The Celts thought that you should learn. You should learn new things, but you shouldn't write it down. Good things should be captured in art and they should be captured in story. It's not until Patrick that they start to actually write down some of these things. Patrick and his team worked hard to combat these things through through education. They corrected poor theology. So Celtic monasticism from the start had education at its core. And they brought a lot of Roman books, Greco-Roman books with them, on top of the Bible to translate and to copy and to teach people in these Celtic communities about the larger world. As they made these books, some of them still remain. There's a really famous one called the Book of Kells. One of the things they used to do is draw in the books. They used to do Celtic artwork. The Book of Kells is a, is a copy of the Gospels. But it's written with amazing calligraphy and, and there's all this Celtic imagery that's added to it to help people get into the Gospel. Then, after Patrick, there was another man that came up. Again, Patrick was a missionary. He had this missionary zeal. But, but in the hundred or so years after Patrick, that had sort of waned. And, and another leader came up. This one was an Irishman uh, named St. Columbanus. He's sometimes known by his Irish name, Comsil, uh, or mainly known as just St. Columba. St. Columba. St. Columba lived from December seventh, fifteen 1521 June 9th, 597 A.D. Okay, so he's after Patrick. Columba was an Irish abbot. He was one of these monks that lived in one of these monasteries. This is nearly a 100 years after uh, Patrick, so the zeal for faith for monastic living had waned, and it was really Columba that came in and got it fired back up again. He's the one that said, no, we got to take seriously living for Christ and sharing our life together. we got to take seriously writing books and copying and teaching. And we've got to be missionaries. He started a number of missionaries. And, and it was really because of Columba that the Celtic Christian faith moved across Scotland. It had been mainly in Ireland. And I get a lot of Scots at, at the time. They were called the Picts. But the Picts started to really believe in Jesus a lot because Columba, started planting missions uh, uh, mission outposts that became monasteries there at one point columba was actually exiled because of a fight he got into with the king from ireland and he went to an island off the coast of scotland and started an abbey there called the iona abbey very famous abbey still in existence to this day Uh, And and actually, your liturgy this summer, a lot of the liturgy has come out of the Iona Abbey. I've been using Iona Abbey liturgy uh, for us this summer. And Columba planted that when he was exiled from Ireland. He had this real sense of mission and of purpose and of education. He sort of re-strengthened what was going on. Because of Columba's work then, we can actually track in history missionaries that were Celtic, Irish missionaries that went across. They didn't do much in Britain. They were not welcomed in Britain. But when you go to like what was called Gaul, France, down through Germany, down to Italy, we have for several hundred years a huge influence of Irish missionaries that planted monasteries across Europe. It's pretty amazing to see. And what you have to understand in context is, this was the fall of Western Europe in the Roman Empire. Okay, at this time, really, uh, over this period, the, these Germanic barbarian peoples came through Europe and kicked the Romans out, even getting all the way to Rome at one point. And what had happened was, the Christianity had been sort of the center religion of the empire for a while. Like, like that was what everybody was. You were Christian. If you were Roman, you were Christian. And, and what happened was, the, the actually Christianity got very weak. Okay, got kind of lazy. It didn't have to work. It didn't have to really pray. It was just the dominant voice. And so a lot of Christians could live their lives, but didn't have to think about prayer. Didn't really study their Bible. Didn't really. They just went to went to their church and went on with their good old Roman life and when the western front of the roman empire fell basically rome went, or europe went into total disarray there's no christians there's no order there was no uh, in the 5 and 600s there's no governments there's not countries rome when rome had to pull back and rome got kicked out it was the wild wild west in europe civilization was literally crumbling And you know who helped save civilization in Europe? Irish missionaries. that came over from Ireland, starting monasteries, translating books. In fact, there are a lot of key key, um, Roman and Greek books, classic literature that we only have today because the Irish copied them. We lost them in Rome. We lost them in Egypt. We have them because these Irish... Celtic Christians copied these books. And so what happened was these missionaries came and and people, people described them in history as wearing books on their belts, like victory belts. They would come prancing into towns with belts of books and they would then open the books and show people these texts that they hadn't seen in hundreds of years by this point. They really opened up Europe, again, to learning, to literature, love of books, and skills of bookmaking. They breathe new life into an exhausted culture in Europe. And uh, as the book I read this week about this, a book by a guy named Thomas Cahill called How the Irish Saved Civilization, the untold story of Ireland's heroic role in the fall of Rome and the rise of medieval Europe. You understand what I'm saying to you? That, that these Irish-Celtic missionaries from these monasteries in Ireland and Scotland came and really saved Europe at a time where Europe was falling apart. Divisions and chaos and fear. Now, I know this is a big old history lesson, but let me bring it home for you. Because when I hear about the fall of Europe and the divisions that people had and the loss of learning and the inability to discuss with everybody and the violence and the infighting that takes place in Europe at this time and the absolute chaos that unfolds, that nothing can bring these people together. I cannot help but think of our world right now. I cannot help when I read these descriptions of this period of history and look at the West and look at the United States right now and how divided we are, and how much we have lost our education, and we have lost our history, and we have lost our faith, and we have lost our, our ability to talk about these things. I cannot help but see it coming apart at the seams in the United States and in the West today the same way I think the Europe felt during these times. I can't help but, but, but see a connection. And to my amazement, when I look at this description of Christianity leading into that, I cannot help but in a terrified way also see some connections. Because in my opinion, Christianity has been the dominant voice for so long that in some ways we've gotten lazy and we've lost our power. Christians didn't have to be people of prayer. We didn't have to be people of study. We didn't have to be people that read our Bible or really shared our life together. You just went to church and then you went about your Roman life. And so we've got churches that have lost a lot of their power because we're not people of prayer. We're we, we not people of learning. And we're not people of the gospel. And we're, we're not people of service and hospitality. And, and as I look at the American church, I think this is a weak church that cannot, as, as our country and our world falls apart, do you think that we have churches strong enough to stand and help them find their civilization again? See, for me, the only answer is to look back at the inspiration of these monasteries, of these abbeys. And, and I don't think we need to be monks. And I, I don't want to be a nun. I told you that. I don't think we have to take vows of poverty and celibacy. But, but what if we started to learn a little bit from these people? What if we took prayer seriously, everybody? What if we, every week, we're going to share a meal with somebody that's not in our family? What if we're going to pray? What if we're going to actually read and take the study of Scripture seriously? What if we're going to take discipleship, service, hospitality? What if we're going to really start caring about a world in a different way? What if this wasn't just the Northminster church, but we started to think of it as the Northminster Abbey, where we share our lives together, we share meals together, we pray together, and we take seriously following God's will in this world? Of course, it'll take balance. The problem with monasteries is that they can become too works-oriented, where we try to save ourselves, or too focused on ourselves, where we miss the world. So maybe we don't need to go to the extreme of having a monastery, but maybe, maybe, if we saw ourselves as the Northminster Abbey, and we started really sharing our lives together, we could make a difference. Maybe, just maybe, if we had our own rule of life, where we were studying and we were praying, we could make a difference, at least in this little corner of the world. And I think that's really the only hope for our culture, for our country, for our world, is that communities would rise up to be deep Christian communities wherever they are. If you put one of those in every one of these cities in our country, I think that could make a difference. I think that could make a difference. It did for Europe. And it did coming out of this Celtic... Irish and Scottish identity. This is the kind of living that saved the Celtic people. It's the kind of living that saved civilization of Europe and I think it is the only hope for saving civilization today. For helping people find Jesus today is this kind of deep living. So may Christ build this Northminster Abbey as an outpost for his kingdom. Amen.